Okay, thank you everybody for tuning in and uh, joining us tonight. We are continuing our Shi'ur on the great Paitanim of Jewish history. And last week we left off speaking about Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra. Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra as we, as we learned, was a resident of Granada originally. And one of the greatest uh, Jewish paitanim, the greatest Jewish poets of all time. He is regarded as the craftsman of, of elegance and the, the great craftsman of Jewish piyot and, and Hebrew poetry. And we saw a lot about his fascinating life and his fascinating philosophy last week and many people who are familiar with Piyut will understand the great influence that Moshe ben Ezra had on Piyut in general and on Hebrew verse um, in specific. Now, discussing Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra was possible in one Shi'or. Um, and in a sense because his life and many of his works are known although they're very numerous and voluminous, um, his life and works influenced a subset of people. These were Jewish educated people, people who are familiar with Hebrew, people who are invested in piyot and invested in Jewish history. Many of those people were heavily influenced by Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra because of his his um because of his learning because of his his um his production because of his uh, many of the sfarim he wrote even though they're not so well known to the greater jewish community his effect was felt and his place in uh the piyot of um his place in piyot of medieval spain is extremely important he's one of the top 3 one of the top 4 of the of the great Paitanim of Spain, and therefore, Bimoshe ben Ezra, um, although we could spend so much time talking about his about uh, so much time talking about the the his output and his and and his piyutim and his philosophy and all the works that he wrote, I, I didn't feel it would be reasonable to spend more than one shiur on him simply because it would stretch everybody's endurance. So tonight, we're going to move on from Bimoshe ben Ezra, and move on to arguably the greatest of the medieval Spanish paitanim, or Yehuda HaLevi. Yehuda HaLevi influenced not just religious Jews, but also secular Jews. Yehuda HaLevi influenced every Jew that lives on earth today. And to do him justice in one shiur would be impossible. So tonight I'm going to try to do the best I can to study the background of Rabbi Yehuda Levi, the person, the man, who he was. And then Bezrat Hashem next week will dive deeper into his philosophies and into his poetics. Because there's a lot to know, um, there's a lot to feel, there's a lot to understand, and we're going to have to get through his life and his, um, and his works a little bit more slowly. So now... Most historians and most histories of Rabbi Levi, even when you look at seasoned historians, when they begin speaking about Rabbi Levi, 
they began with they all begin with some poetic or romantic introduction it's they, they all wax poetic wax romantic speaking about him in the most um enchanted of terms and it's very difficult for anyone who is familiar with hebrew the hebrew language to not be enchanted by Rabbi Huda Alevi. he's a very easily enchanting person his his ideas were enchanting. His text was enchanting. I'm I'm going to try my best to be objective throughout the shiur because there is a lot to be lost by speaking about Rabbi Levi in the enchanting uh, in the enchanting mode. So let's try our best to first study it objectively. Let's let's see the history. Let's see a little bit of the dry facts first of who the man was, and then we could walk through. Um, the rest of the rest of his of his output and the rest of his influence. Now, I think the the historian who came closest to to really just doing the objective uh, the objective hard work, the historical hard work, was either Chaim Sherman or Ezra Fleischer. They did well, either maybe Ezra Fleischer more. They both did seriously good work in studying Rebuta Levy's life and history without getting to. Uh, you know, uh, waxing legendary or without waxing poetic. So let's recap where we are in in history first. This is Spain at the end, or what we call today Spain, at the end of the 11th century. The, the Iberian Peninsula at that time, the Iberian Peninsula at that time was under the control of the Umayyad Caliphate. The Umayyads were the remnants of a Baghdadi uh, a kingdom who established a Muslim kingdom in Spain uh, already in the, well, I think it was at the end of the, this would be the mid-9th century. I, I think at the beginning of the 9th century, that was when it finally came to its rise. Now, the Umayyad Caliphate was great for the Jews, and this their Muslim hosts gave them uh, a fairly good run compared to the Visigothics before them. However, at the end of the 11th century, the Umayyad Caliphate began to fall, especially at its center in Cordoba. This kingdom began to fall, and what happened was is that all of the areas that were previously under this influence fractured into a bunch of city-states. This was called the Taifa states, and they competed with each other for influence and domination. To add complexity to this uh, political situation, you also had a large group of Christian kingdoms which were began, beginning to grow in their power. And these Christian kingdoms were also slowly eating away at the Muslim territories. Now, to add another layer of complexity to this, you had multiple ethnicities living on the Iberian Peninsula. You had classical Arabs, you had Berbers from Northern Africa, you had the Europeans who were there from the start, and then you had the Jews who were there from all over. And it wasn't simply like a Muslim territory had only Muslims or Arabic-speaking people, or Christian territories had only Europeans or, Christi or, or Latin-speaking people. Many territories overlapped. Many territories uh, you know, were, were seized from another kingdom. And often you had, uh, let's call it, European spe uh, Arabic-speaking Europeans. You would have uh, Latin-speaking Arabs you would a romance really romance speaking arabs you would have jews who were capable of both and it was a very interesting culture and society throughout spain at the time complicated place 
but it was nevertheless quite interesting. And although some historians began to call this era an era of convivencia, like uh, when all three um, when all three religions were able to live in somewhat harmony with each other, this is very much a myth. There was always a religious tension between the peoples, and what at best we could say was that there was a certain amount of accepted tolerance and convenient tolerance for people of other religions and other faiths. And as much as it suited the kings of of the Christian kingdoms or the kings of the Muslim kingdoms, they would at convenience tolerate people of other faiths and they were managed to get along out of a convenient, um, through, really through convenience, they got along fairly well in certain eras. However, it is not to be mistaken with any, uh, you know, there was no kumbaya, there was no, uh, there were very hard lines. It wasn't like, oh, I'm kind of Jewish, kind of Muslim, I'm kind of Catholic, kind of Christian, kind of, kind of Christian, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, metro, none of that. There were lines that were not crossed, and this uh, peninsula was, at the time when Abihud al-Levi was born, a fairly complicated place already. Now, at the end of the 11th century, when the Umayyad dynasty had collapsed and these Taifa states, many of them Berber, uh, started taking, started becoming, uh, rising to power, the Berber states weren't always so skilled at maintaining that power, and many of them were very selfish, and a lot of them didn't care too much about conquering, uh, or didn't have a vision for conquering the entire Spanish peninsula. However, in northern Africa, there was a group called the Murabitun, the Almoravids, and the Almoravids, uh, which is the Latinized way of saying it, those who uh, are from the Murabitun, are from Ribat, certain type of um, certain type of town in northern Africa. These, these Muslim fanatics rose from northern Africa into uh, Spain, and they began seizing and taking over large swaths of that territory. So the Almoravids were a big problem for the Jews. Because the Almoravids, let me just admit somebody, give me a second. The Almoravids were a lot less tolerant than the Berbers. In the Almoravids' view, you have, this has to be a Muslim territory. Uh, there should be no reason why Jews should have high positions of power. And let me just mute, I'm sorry. And their system of government was going to take over any previous uh, situation of government. And therefore, no matter what happened, whether it was the Berbers, the, the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews were always caught in the middle. So when the Almoravids came and conquered, uh, began conquering in Spain, it created tremendous political upheaval and a scary time for the Jews. And as we mentioned last week, in the year 1090, Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra was forced to flee from Granada because the Almoravids had seized Granada, terrifying the Jews all to escape. So this is the era in which Rabbi Huda Levi was born. We know that he was born in a suburb of Saragossa, which at the time was a, was a Taifa state. And it's probably not later than 1075, but roughly around the year 1070 was the year he was born. Now, that area, Tudela, is noted for other Rishonim, other early scholars having come from that area as well. We know that Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra came from Tudela. We know Binyamin, uh, the, the, the famous traveler Binyamin Mitudela was, was also from there. But about Rabbi, Rabbi Yudha Levi's family, in Tudela we don't really know much. We know that his father's name was Shmuel, and we know that he clearly had uh, a wealthy upbringing. In one of his poems, he describes himself as having uh, grown up basically with a, 
you know, with a silver spoon. Like I, I was born into relative wealth and he didn't have too much financial trouble in his youth. We don't, we do also know, we don't know very much about, um, let's put it this way before, before I start discussing his movements for almost 800 years, the, the Jewish people were never so great at, at writing down history. So it wasn't until the early 19th century when people started researching Jewish history heavily. And it took a very long time until historians got to work to figure out what exactly Yehuda Levi's life was all about and exactly where he lived, when and when he lived, where. There's a lot of confusing information because what you'll read from the early 19th century does not conform to what you read from the early 21st century. And the 21st century stuff is 200 years of research later. And therefore, what we know now is a little, uh, is probably more accurate, but we knew very little, only, only 100, 200, 200 years ago, we knew very little about who Rabbi Huda Levi was and where he lived when. Today we know more, but there's so much more that we don't know than, than we do know. One of the things we do know is that he left Tudela for, for and he left Tudela for southern Spain. We don't know where in southern Spain he's, he, he was. Most likely he went to Lucina. Lucina was, the, was the, Jewish, the Jewish city. It's like Lakewood in their time. It was like the Lakewood of Spain. That was where the yeshivot were. And most scholars suspect that he went to go learn under Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Giyat or under Rabbi Yitzchak al-Fasi in the yeshiva in Lucina. And it would make sense because his level of education was so high that it would be hard to imagine that he learned in any other yeshivot unless he had private tutors of some, of some kind. We don't know if he actually learned by the riff, um, or Yitzchak al-Fasi, but we do know that when the riff was niftar, he wrote a kina to, to uh, what's the word, to lament the death of the riff. It doesn't seem to be a personal kina as if he knew him directly, so most likely he wasn't a direct Talmud of the riff. But we do know that many of his colleagues, many of the people he knew and developed lifelong friendships with, had learned in Lucina. So that would lend support to the assumption that he learned in Lucina, but we don't know this for sure. Regardless of where he learned, it is clear from all the contemporaneous sources that he was extremely, extremely gifted. He was a genius of the highest order, and no matter what he studied, whether it was Torah, whether it was science, whether it was uh, philosophy, whether it was poetry, he mastered extremely quickly. And when he was really, really young, he was already very precocious and beyond his years. What's exceptional about his talents, though, is that when it came to poetry, he was God-kissed, as some, as, some, as some scholars like to say. He was gifted beyond any, I mean, the English way to say this is not very polite, but he was a freak of nature. That's really what he was. And he was so talented when he was so young that, that it astonished all of his peers at his skills. You can't just, it's, it's not just a mastery in Hebrew that you need in order to become a poet of that skill. You also need to have a tremendous artistic preco- uh, uh, predisposition. You have to be extremely artistic as well. And this was something that he demonstrated very, very early. And not just from a particular strain of poetry. It was seen as almost any type of poetry that he tried his hand at, whether it was uh, Hebrew poetry, Arabic poetry, uh, if he was going to write a kasida, if he was going to write an ofan, whatever kind of poetry he tried his hand at, he mastered very, very quickly. He was also exceptionally good at imitation. So, 
from a very young age, he developed, he developed many friends. And lucky for him, he also had a very attractive personality. People loved him. He was a good person. He was a, a geshmaki guy, as they would say in, in the yeshiva shabbat. You know, he was, everybody loved to be with him. Everybody loved to schmooze with him. He was an extremely popular individual from a young age. Now, at a young age, he was invited from Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra to meet him in Granada. Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra was older than him by about 10 years. However, Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra, at his height, at his peak in Granada, was already a very important official there and also the greatest poetic mind in Spain. Nobody in Spain was a greater poetic mind at the time than Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra. And what happened was, was that Rabbi Huda Levi sent a fan mail, like a fan letter, to Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra, which impressed Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra so much that he replied with a letter in return, inviting him to come stay with him, <coughs> stay with him in Granada. Now, because of some misinformation, a different story has been told. And I'll tell you that story because it's honestly much more interesting, even though it isn't true. And what the story is, is that he was staying by somebody's house named uh, Yosef Ibn uh, Sadiq, I think. And this was another scholar of repute, uh, a poet himself. And the scholar had received a letter from Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra um, telling him how much he missed him. So Moshe ibn Ezra had sent a letter to one of his colleagues. Um, this Rabbi Yosef ibn Sadiq was also a poet of, of repute. And he sent him a letter telling him, telling him how much he missed him. Now Rabbi Moshe ibn Ezra's letter, his, his poem, I'm sorry, was, was exquisitely crafted, very complex. Um, it wasn't really the content which was so... Uh, so original, but the, the, the structure was ex extraordinary. It was a beautifully complex poem. And the story goes that that, that, that Yosef ibn Sadiq had tasked his students to compose the reply. This is kind of like the cultural setting that the, the students would, would, would compose the draft and the master would approve it and send it out. And they were flummoxed. They could not, they tried as hard as they tried. They, they had some sort of, um, it seems like they had some sort of drinking party and, and they would they would um, they would compose poetry at parties, almost like sometimes in Spain there were these uh, like rap offs, like people would do these extemporaneous uh, uh, parties where two people would go head to head and try to extemporaneously compose piet. But this was uh, this was a similar party where they were trying to reply to the letter. They were all uh, stuck; they couldn't really uh, proceed too much, and they begged Rabbi Huda, the younger Rabbi Huda Levi, to try and help them. And he demurred, and they finally pressured him, and then he composed the most outstanding, amazing imitation of Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra's poem. They were all shocked, and he sent it to Rabbi Moshe ben, to Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra with a code word in it that it was him, Rabbi Huda Levi, who had composed the poem. And he was so uh, taken aback that he invited him to come to Granada. Now, this story is very fun to tell, especially with all the enchanting details of, uh, of how it happened, and especially if you read... Uh, I'm just going to hold up here Hillel Halkin's book. Um, Hillel Halkin writes a, writes a biography of Yehuda Levi where he plays with your imagination. He plays with celebrity. It's, it's really a fun, a, a great biography of Yehuda Levi. And he loves the storytelling. However, the facts are not... Are that, that one fact Hillel Halkin got wrong because what was, what was discovered was that the, the letter he's talking about is actually a letter that Rabbi Yosef ibn Sadiq wrote for Moshe ibn Ezra. And, and he has some of the facts wrong, but... The story in general is accurate. The story is, in general, that Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra from afar became an instant fan of Rabbi Yehuda Levi and very much eager, 
very, very eager to meet him because he didn't know of another person in Spain who had his skills and his level of intellect and his level of learning and his level of poetic ability. So he packed his bags, Rabbi Yehuda Levi shortly packed his bags and went for Granada. Now, in Granada, he made many acquaintances. Besides the Ibn Ezra family, there were plenty of large, of, of powerful Rabbanim who were in uh, Granada at the time. And he spent quite a bit of time there from the lifelong companionships that he had with the Ibn Ezra family. We can tell that he spent a lot of time studying and learning with them. And this seemed to impact all of them. All of them were very moved and very much impacted by his arrival in Granada. But this, this stay could not have stay, had lasted long because even if in the year 1090 when Rabbi Yudha Levi was already 20, or roughly 20 years old, the Almoravids invaded and seized Granada and he probably didn't stick around. So at this point, after leaving Granada, we don't know precisely where he went. After Granada, he ended up somewhere. We don't know where. But he did need to look for a job because he didn't hang around the Muslim areas of Spain for very long. He decided next to go to the Christian areas of what we would call today Spain. And from what we can tell, the next place he went was Toledo. And Toledo was now controlled by Alfonso VI, the, the Christian king. And he looked around for work. The problem with Toledo for a cultured Arab, Arab country Jew was that Toledo, in his eyes, was devoid of culture and the people were dumb and he couldn't find many companions or you know, people who saw his way of, of thinking or living, similar to Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra. Now, Toledo did have many Jews there who were culturally Arab, but not really enough for Rabbi Huda Levi's liking. So he didn't really love being there, and he couldn't really find work, because what is a professional poet to do in a, in a Christianized land? Nobody's hiring a poet for pay, and there are not going to be many patrons uh, readily available to become a full-time professional poet. And therefore, he had to look for other work. So now he decided, like any good Jewish boy, to turn to medicine. And back then, becoming a doctor has nothing to do with becoming a doctor today. Uh, being literate was like you were halfway there. If you, if you were literate, you were halfway on your way to becoming a doctor. As long as you could read Arabic and you could read Latin or Greek, you were nine-tenths of the way there. You just had to sit down with the textbooks, study, and when you felt you were ready, hang your shingle and ta-da, you're a doctor. People like you, great, you'll be successful. People didn't like you, uh, well, you were not going to succeed. And... Rabbi Huda Levi began his study of medicine, and from one of his letters, we could tell that he absolutely hated it. Um, he was studying the Arabicized textbooks from Ibn Sina, right? Avicenna, the famous uh, Muslim Arab philosopher, and he was studying the Galenic works in Greek. And he he wrote in a letter to a friend that he, like my 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 hands have been blackened with the ink of the Arabs, and um, I have been caught in the quicksand of the Greeks. In other words, he was drenched in his, he was tired and drenched in his studies of medicine. And he speaks about them as vanities. He says they're like Havalim, they never heal anybody. And he just doesn't believe in it. He just simply doesn't believe in the medicine. He thinks it's all a bunch of, of, of baloney. And he really doesn't think that any of it is, is, is real. It's not evidence-based. It's, it's, it's all a bunch of fairy tales. And he doesn't like it at all. And to his credit, he was a thinking individual. And Galenic medicine is a, a load of baloney. So from his perspective, 
medicine was not a true uh, science. The problem was that he needed to make money, so he became a doctor anyway. And he really hated medicine because he just felt like he was never actually curing anybody. But because he was such a popular person and so, such a likable person, people loved him as a doctor. And he made tons of money. Just going to the doctor who's a nice guy is, is kind of half the, half the cure. If your doctor uh, listens to you and you feel like he listens to you, you're already walking out feeling like you're cured. And whatever herbal medicine he's going to give you is going to cure you. So Huda Levy made plenty of great money becoming a doctor, but... He, he very much didn't like it. Unlike, for example, the Rambam who believed in the medical science and it took his own turn with evidence with an evidence-based approach, but but uh, Levy did not like medicine. But nevertheless, he spent at least 20 years in Toledo. And during that time in Toledo, we can see that he was also, he wasn't the Rav of Toledo, but he definitely was one of the, um, one of the rabbis who was, involved in communal affairs. In the Cairo Geniza, they found letters where Bihuda Levi was discussing a certain mitzvah of Pidyon Shivuyim, where he was trying to raise, uh, maybe in today's terms, maybe like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to rescue a, a young Jewish girl who was, who was being held for ransom. It's not clear by who, possibly a Christian Possibly the daughter Raka of, of Alfonso, but it's, it's completely not clear. What we do see is that he was a dignitary. Now, the next thing, is that, things that, thing that happened to him was that in the... I, and I, I promise I'm going through this history for a reason. We're going to get to all of this, all of the reasons for all of this in a minute. Now, in the... Um, in in uh, Toledo, where he had spent two decades of his life... There was enough of a tolerance by the government that the government did value Jewish dignitaries. They did value Jewish officials. And in the government of Alfonso VI and his children, they very much, and his grandchildren even, they very much valued um, Jewish uh, uh, education and the Jewish scholars that they had within their kingdom. So there were still Jews who reached very important and high positions. There was a certain Jewish dignitary who was part of the government who was very much like the, the head of the Jewish, commu Jewish community. He was maybe 45 years old, and he was sent on a very important mission by the king to do a diplomatic mission for a nearby neighbor state. And very sadly, Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra wrote an entire poem to uh, welcome this dignitary back when he was going to come back because everyone knew that he was going to go and he was going to come back. So he wrote a beautiful poem for him upon his return because the Jewish community was so worried when he was gone, so excited when he returned. And it's a beautiful poem. However, the poem never got to be used because this dignitary, whose name escapes me, I think it was Provaciel, I forgot the exact name, he was assassinated on his journey home. And this uh, plunged the community into mourning, and Rabbi Moshe ben, and, and Rabbi Huda Levi wrote a kina, more, more than one kina, where it's not just a kina, but it's a curse poem, where he begins cursing the children, the, the children of Edom, like the Christians and the Muslims, that all of them should should uh, come to their demise. For Yosef ibn Prosiel was his name, and and um, and he writes with great bitterness about the the language of Galut. And he writes with a tremendous amount of, of dis, uh, disillusionment about the, the Gentile hosts that they had in Spain. It seems that the way Rabbi, Moshe, the way Rabbi Yudha Levi felt about their hosts is that 
from a certain point, he felt like maybe we could find ourselves a stable place here in Spain. Perhaps some of the kingdoms will be friendly towards the Jews. But every time he thought that maybe the Jewish people found the golden era, maybe we found this is our Brooklyn, this is our New York, you know, this is where we're going to be and we're going to establish ourselves as Jews who matter, who are part of a society and we're functions of a, of a society and we will be accepted. His, his, illusion, his illusion was shattered and it brought him great pain. And this pain uh, of his disillusionment with uh, governments of both types and his, his subsequent understanding that the Jewish people were not comfortable in Galut is something that inspired him greatly into his thought pattern uh, that we're going to see in his piyot. And it's important to understand these politics of what, where he lived and how complicated it is in order to understand who he is a, as a paitan and why he is so passionate about the Jewish people not belonging anywhere besides Eretz Yisrael in his, in his, in his day. Sorry, in, 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 um, besides Eretz Yisrael, Latid Lavo. Now, it's not clear exactly why. Perhaps it was this assassination. But for some reason, Herbut Alevi moved out of Toledo and he went back to a Muslim-controlled territory of Cordoba. We know that by the late 1030s, this was where he was living because Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra, in his, in his book, mentions that Rabbi Yehud Alevi was living in Cordoba. Also in Cordoba, he was still making money as a doctor because he was very popular as a doctor. And, and um, what's the word? And the political situation, however, was not too much better there either. The reason for this is that even in Cordoba, the Jews were getting very, very nervous. You see, it wasn't just the Almoravids who made the Jews nervous. In Northern Africa, the Almohads were another group of rebels, of, of rebellious uh, Arabs, who were much more radically, uh, fanatically Muslim than the Amoravids. For them, it wasn't just, you know, uh, convert or leave. For them, it was convert or die. And much of the supposed criticisms and tolerances of the, uh, of the Christian empire, which the Amoravids were so angry about, or the Berber empires, really, the Amohads accused the Amoravids of. They said, how could you be so tolerant towards, towards Jews and Christians? How can, uh, you know, you're not from enough? And the Amohads were create, creating a great stir in Northern Africa. Now, convert or die is a very, very scary thing, especially when the armies are beginning to have great force. The Jews in Spain were terrified. There, there were these armies sweeping across Africa, killing out Jewish populations or forcing hundreds or thousands of people to convert or to die. So this was a terror for the Jews in Spain. On top of that, everybody knows that the, that the first crusades began in 1096 and the Christians approached uh, Eretz Yisrael in 1099 and the Christians with a great bloodbath destroyed Yerushalayim and, and uh, created the kingdom of Jerusalem in Yerushalayim. So all of these events were throwing the Jewish communities into turmoil and chaos. From their perspective, the, the time of Mashiach had come. This was, you know, this is foretelling the time of Mashiach. And everybody was feeling very strongly that this is the end of the world, really. Uh, once the, 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 the first crusade sent a shockwave across the world that, the, that there was a new battle between uh, religions and there was a new battle from the, between the East and the West. And from now on, 
the Christians and the Muslims can never be friends, and there will always be this rift. And honestly, the past thousand years has been defined by the First and Second Crusades, and nobody can deny that. We're still living in a post-Crusade world. And, but this was, he was living, Rabbi Huda Levi was living in the decades, uh, decades after the First Crusade, uh, he really lived during the First Crusade and in the set, during the decades of the Second Crusade. So with his own eyes and his own ears, he was hearing and seeing the terrors that approached the Jews from both sides. Now, in this turmoil and in this chaos came many false messiahs. There was, uh, what was his name? Giat ibn, uh, oh, the names are escaping me. There was uh, Ibn Deri. I'm going to try to remember all the names offhand. This one guy had a dream. One guy said he was Eliyahu Hanavi. Uh, yeah, Ibn Aryeh. You had um, Moshe Deri. You had a bunch of people all claiming that they were either harking to the, they were either calling for Mashiach to come very soon or that they were the Mashiach. Uh, all sorts of people getting up and saying that they are Mashiach. And there was even a group of, of people together in Cordoba who got together and they decided, they did a calculation with the, the astrology and they decided that Mashiach was coming in the year 1130. And interestingly, Rabbi Huda Levi himself wrote a poem where he says that he had a dream that Mashiach is coming in the year 1130. Despite all these great hopes for the year 1130, the year came and went and Mashiach never came. This further prodded the Jewish psychology and Rabbi Huda Levi's own psychology to come past the, the point of yush, to come past the point of giving up. We can't just, you know, lose hope anymore. We have to find a new perspective. We can't, we can't uh, uh, just imagine that Mashiach is going to come save us. We have to do the saving ourselves. We have to go to, we have to go to Eretz Yisrael ourselves. We have to make living in, 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 in Eretz Yisrael and bringing the Mashiach a priority ourselves. And this is part of the, this is part of the inspiration for Behuda Levi and part of his passion. We can see, um, it's easy to understand, to look at uh, just uh, Yehuda Levi, the philosopher and the Kuzari, or you can look at his poetry uh, just at the text, but to understand what gave him this kind of passion, you have to understand how much uh, emotional turmoil the Jews were going through during that time and how in- inspirational his verse was to them. When he began uh, preaching and he began uh, writing poetry for the Geulah, for the redemption, when he began writing poetry with a passion for Eretz Yisrael and a passion for the redemption, it really, really, really spoke to people because people at the time needed something. They needed to hear this kind of this kind of rhetoric. Most famously, because he was having, um, because he was in this state of mind, he also wrote the Sefer, which is called, uh, I guess let's translate it into English, because it was, it was composed in Arabic, the Book of Refutation and Proof on Behalf of the Despised Religion. You see, at this time, Rabbi Huda Levi decided to write a book which today in Hebrew was translated by Rabbi Huda bin Tibon as Sefer Hukuzari. And he wrote a book where he's trying to show how the Jewish people might be a minority. The Jewish people might be oppressed. We might be a minority of minorities. But in this book, he argues why the Jewish people are instrumental in the purpose of creation. I hope next week to to go deeper into the philosophy of this. But from a nationalistic perspective, the Jews were trodden upon. They were not the majority. The Christian and Muslim empires 
uh, wanted to subjugate the Jews and oppress them and to consider them lower class citizens. And Rabbi Yudah Levi is coming in defense of the despised religion. And besides the Karaim who were also causing him problems, he wanted to mount a theological defense for why Judaism is the supreme religion and why Judaism can, and the service of God is especially fitted for being uh, served by Jews and served by Jews only in Eretz Yisrael. And this is really his this is uh, much of his, po of his arguments, his philosophical arguments are outlined in the Sefer HaKuzari. So if you want to study the intellectual side of that, which I hope to do a little bit more of next week, we can, we can study the intellectual side. But that's, that's where his reason was going. But his passion and his emotion really comes out in his piyut. And this piyut, he was almost the first Zionist, the first real Tzioni. He was the first person who inspired the Jewish people. Since the time of the Nevi'im, we, we literally haven't had a person who inspired the Jewish people so much to come back to the land of Israel and to, and to serve Hashem only in Eretz Yisrael. This was really, this person, Rabbi Yehuda Levi, is among the most important Jews to have ever lived in the psyche of the Jewish people simply for this influence, for this influence of telling us that we are special, we do have a purpose, and despite ourselves being a minority, we belong being the, the chosen servants of Hashem and our chosen land, our place where we need to do that is Eretz Yisrael. And he mounted a tremendous defense of that in Sefer Kuzari. So let's move a little further to finish off the story of his life. And then if we have, uh, I'm not sure how much time we have, we are, we're pretty deep in, so I don't know how much time we're going to have for his, for his PU team, but um, we'll mention a few when, when, at, the, at the end of the shiur. We'll mention them by name, and then hopefully next week we'll look at them inside. Okay, so he began speaking about an aliyah, to make aliyah to Yisrael, and his friends disagreed with him. His family didn't want him to leave. Um, we don't know much about his family. We know that he was married, although he probably was not. We don't know much about his wife. He never really discusses her in romantic terms at all. But on the other hand, the poets of Spain almost never spoke about, in their poetry, they never, almost never spoke about their immediate family. Uh, it, they never spoke about really family matters. We do know he had a, 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 single surviving, a single daughter who lived to adulthood, and he had a grandson named Yehuda, as we know the Sfaradim name after the living. And he... His grandson, Yehuda, was his pride, and he, he loved his daughter, he loved his grandson. We know that to a degree, um, he had his son-in-law named Yitzchak ibn Ezra. And many historians suspect strongly that Rabbi Yitzchak ibn Ezra was the son of Rabbi Abraham ibn Ezra, a very prestigious marriage. And much of his family didn't want him to leave, he didn't want to leave his family, but he felt so passionately about his ideal <clears throat> for leaving Teret Yisrael that he really... Um, vetoed all of their opinions, and in many poems he speaks about his, his arguments for going to Eretz Yisrael despite the pain and the fear of leaving his family. Now, this, um, hold up, let me just look here. Okay, yeah, so one of the things that besides being scared of leaving his family that made, that made this kind of dangerous is that sailing through the sea in that time was, was, was a terrifying proposition. It wasn't just like you were going to get on a boat and totally going to live. Uh, getting, to, getting on a boat was, was almost a very, was, was a very dangerous thing. So Behuda Levi was not, he, he, he was not uh, fearless. He definitely demonstrates that he was fearful for getting on a boat and going to, to Eretz Yisrael. But he had a plan, and his plan was first to go to Egypt, 
and then from Egypt to sail, first to sail to Egypt, and then to sail from Egypt to Eretz Yisrael. And he did this because he met a friend named Chalfon HaLevi. He was, a, he was a businessman who had visited Spain, an Egyptian businessman. And Chalfon HaLevi was very educated and, and became a, an instant fan of Yudah HaLevi and invited him to come spend time with him in, in, in Egypt. So Yudah HaLevi took the terrifying journey from, uh, from, I believe it was the port of... Sorry, I don't remember... He left the port in roughly the year 1140. He left from he left from Spain in 1140. Maybe it was in Granada. I'm not, I'm not. I don't remember where. But he left Spain on a boat, and he wrote many. What's he wrote a little book called a book of sea poems, like Shirei Hayam, which is very unique in Jewish history. That that somebody wrote a book of of um, poetry about his sea voyage, where he really describes the. Uh, you know what it was like on the boat, how, uh, how people were afraid, how the sailors were horrible, how the conditions were terrible. But it, it's a very unique thing in, in, in Jewish literature. And he took his son, Yitzhak, his son-in-law Yitzhak with him and a few other people that they were going to go to Egypt. When he got to Egypt, he was, he was received like a celebrity. Chalfon Alevi uh, sent messengers to greet him. The, the, the Dayan of the city, Rabbi Aaron Achaver, came out to meet him with, with all the Rabbanim. And they made his life fantastic in Alexandria. They pressured him to stay. They kept him there for many, many months. And uh, in many ways, they made it hard for him to leave, even though uh, he, he really wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, he found so much, he found such an incredible fan base there. So many people wanted to learn from him. So many people wanted to hear his piyut. So many people wanted to, to, um, to, to be influenced by him just to see his face that he found it very hard to leave Alexandria, very hard to leave Cairo when he got to Cairo. And it, despite all of this pressure, he writes in a poem how he was not going to succumb to this pressure. He was going to remain faithful to his original idea and he was going to go to Eretz Yisrael. Now, we don't know exactly what his fate was. For many years, he was considered to be such an icon of Zionism and such an icon of, of Jewish thought that people felt it was impossible that Rabbi Yehuda Levi never got to Eretz Yisrael. So a legend arose that Rabbi Yehuda Levi got to Eretz Yisrael. He got, he got to Yerushalayim. And when he got to the gates of Yerushalayim, he, he bent down to the floor and cried to kiss the earth. And at the gates, he, he began to say his piyut, Hatzion Halotishali, the famous piyut. And the, at the gates, uh, a passing Muslim or Christian warrior saw a Jew and in, in, um, in a moment of zeal, passed by and slay the Jew. And the Rebuda Levi was killed at the gates of Yerushalayim. This was a legend said of Rebuda Levi. Unfortunately, it's not grounded in any historical fact. It only appeared hundreds of years later, so we don't know of it to be true. But what we do know is that he did leave. He did leave Egypt. He did get on a boat to leave um, Egypt. We know he came to Egypt roughly on the 24th of Kislev, a day before Hanukkah. And he left a few months later in the year 1141. And I think it was in Chodesh Av, like July or August. And we don't know if he got to Eretz Yisrael. If he got to the port of Ashkelon, most likely he did get to the port of Ashkelon. But if he did get to Eretz Yisrael, he didn't live there for more than three months because th there's a letter in the Cairo Geniza, which uh, a scholar named Shlomo Goiten found. Uh, Goiten is really the, the eminent scholar who's, who studied uh, the, um, who dove into the Geniza research for 30 years and found 
and, and found everything that could be found on Rabbi Yudah Levi. He even found letters written by Rabbi Yudah Levi in his own hand. Um, and in one of the letters dated three months after Rabbi Yudah Levi had left, uh, had left the port of Cairo, it says Zatzal on Rabbi Yudah Levi's uh, name, and therefore it's clear that Rabbi Yudah Levi had already passed away. So we know that Rabbi Yudah Levi passed away in the year 1141, having been born roughly in the year 1070. Now, we're already very deep in here, and we're not going to have much time for his poetry tonight. But I could say this. Um, Rabbi Yudah Levi is not considered to be one of the greatest, just one of the greatest Hebrew poets to have ever lived. He is considered to be one of the greatest human poets to have ever lived. We have no less than 806 poems from Rabbi Yudah Levi. The majority of them are a Kodesh, or religious in nature, and the minority of them are secular in nature. Now, secular doesn't mean that they're completely secular. Many of them have Jewish themes, but th- this, this is what we have from Rabbi Levi. He was prolific in his output. The research began in the 1830s to, 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 to piece together. They had most of his diwan, uh, of his portfolio, but over the next 200 years, much of it was properly, critically put together into critical editions, um, I, I mean, there's a reader here I'm holding from Chaim Sherman. There is, uh, you could buy Judah Halevi selected poems from Heinrich Brody uh, online. It's fairly cheap. There's, there's many different anthologies, both academic and otherwise, of Rabbi Judah Halevi's piot and Rabbi Judah Halevi's poetry, which are um, fascinating uh, reading, and we're going to get to it next week. It's really beautiful how you can, you can see that from, from, his, from his poetic perspective, and I'll just touch on this for a second, he used most of his training in secular poetry to approach religious poetry. For example, he'll take the style of a love poem and apply that Arabic style towards speaking about Zion or speaking to, about Yerushalayim. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to next week going into that poetry. Um, for example, to just give you an idea... Tzion uh, Halo Tishali, which is a piyut, which almost everybody says on, on Tisha B'Av, was translated into no less than 60 languages. Not, not like six languages, 60 languages. This is how influential Abiyudah Levi's work was. And in a sense, many, some, some, some uh, scholars of piyut ha- have mentioned that it's possible that since the time of the Tehillim, we have not found a, uh, a, a paitan or a, po- a, a, a poet in Klal Yisrael who has, was as great or as inspirational to the Jewish people as Rabbi Levi. It would be not an exaggeration. <clears throat> I'm trying not to wax romantic like historians do, but the truth is, it is not an exaggeration to say that since the time of the Nevi'im, there has never been a single human which was so emotionally influential it maybe since the Shaya, since Yermiyah, we never had a single human who was so emotionally and artistically influential into the thought of the Jewish people for the rest of the history of the Jewish people from from the year he from the from his active years from the, when he lived until today a thousand years later there has been nobody who has had such a profound influence on the Jewish people and as we study next week his poetry and his philosophy more in depth. We will see why that is, and we'll see why his um, his deep Zion, his deep love of Eretz Yisrael, his deep love of the Jewish people and its uniqueness, how that came forth. So I hope 
I hope nobody was bored by the history, but this is a very necessary introduction. If Bezrat Hashem next week, we will see the text itself. Uh, the text itself is, is astonishingly beautiful. Even those who are not so familiar with Hebrew will, I'm sure you'll be entertained. We will, I will post, um, in a, uh, I will post on the screen uh, within the, in the share for, um, I will post the share of the, of the Piyot as I'm going along on Zoom. If anybody wants to follow along, uh, just uh, find out. We, we give the Shior Tuesday nights. If anybody wants to join the Zoom, let me know. And Bezat Hashem, we will continue um, next week with Rebuda Levi's um, Piyot. And thank you everybody for your <laughs> endurance and attention. And I'll see you all next week.